Early in the year 1888, the Baptist Union of Great Britain convened a meeting whose purpose was to censure an individual pastor in the denomination who had just withdrawn his congregation from the Baptist Union. It was a big deal because of which pastor it was that they were going to censure. He was the most famous Baptist in England. He'd been preaching to congregations numbering in the tens of thousands since he was about 22 years old. He'd been dubbed the Prince of Preachers. You probably know his name. This was Charles Spurgeon. He was 54 years old at the time. The fact that the Council of the Baptist Union was censuring Spurgeon was stunning for his whole career. Spurgeon had worked with the Union, tried to bring believers together. He'd supported the Union as a denomination that could welcome, let's say, conservative, reformed, evangelical Protestants into the denomination when they felt alienated from Anglicanism and from Roman Catholicism. But by the late 1880s, Spurgeon had become deeply concerned that the denomination was beginning to assimilate liberal theology. Now, when I say liberal, don't think blue hair and gender dysphoria. Think in Spurgeon's day, theological liberals were peoples who, people who minimized or denied important Christian doctrines. In Spurgeon's day, doctrines such as the full deity of Christ the existence of hell, and most of all, the doctrine that the Bible itself contains no errors. This was being denied. The doctrine of inerrancy was being denied by theological liberals. Spurgeon begins warning the Baptist Union that it needs to, it needs to do something. It needs to adopt a confession of faith that would clearly articulate the boundary between orthodoxy and false teaching. The Union refuses to adopt such a statement. However, their claim was this. We need no creed but Christ. Which sounds good, doesn't it? But the problem is that was exactly the kind of slogan being used by the liberals as they're chipping away at the doctrines that define who Christ is. When Spurgeon continues to protest, the union is going to dig in its heels. And so, finally, Spurgeon withdraws from the denomination in the year 1887. And in response... The Baptist Union meets to censure him, and the censure passes overwhelmingly. It's a public rebuke of Spurgeon, bordering on insult. Well, this is not the end of the situation. Spurgeon's exit had caused some drama, as you can imagine. And many Baptists now were echoing his call for some kind of creedal confession that would affirm biblical inerrancy. So the Baptist Union meets again in April, this is still 1888, And they do put forward a statement now. They actually do. However, the statement is crafted to be extremely vague so that both a conservative Reformed Protestant and a a liberal Unitarian could both sign on equally well. In fact, the only part of the statement that is clear and explicit is the part that says that the Baptist Union can't enforce the statement on any members. The liberals in the denomination love this form of stupidity. They support it passionately, and they move to adopt it. And the motion for this squishy confession to adopt it as the Baptist Union's statement of faith is seconded by a man whose name was James 
Spurgeon. This is Charles Spurgeon's own brother who sincerely believes that the statement will uh, reconcile and heal the divisions within the Baptist Union. Well, now that James Spurgeon is on board, the opposition is going to crumble, and the statement is adopted by the Union by a vote of 2,000 to 7. Now, we can look at history and observe the aftermath of this. Charles Spurgeon's warnings, we know, were not alarmist. They were prescient. The squishy statement did not slow the erosion of doctrine in the Baptist Union. In fact, it made the liberals bolder. It accelerated the pulling down of barriers. Three years later, 1891, the Reformed Baptists merged with the General Baptists. In 1905, they joined the Baptist World Alliance which over the course of the 20th century is going to do what every big denomination did during that time, which is go liberal. Remember, Spurgeon had been censured in the year 1888. In 1988, 100 years later, we find the Baptist World Alliance platforming Archbishop Desmond Tutu, probably the most radical bishop in the Roman Catholic Church, just died uh, as a very old man, just died last Christmas, Desmond Tutu, who at this time, they invited him in to speak about the gospel's role in solving social issues. Just imagine the change in a hundred years that would not have surprised Spurgeon. Today, the, the, the denomination is known as Baptists Together. It has a general secretary who is a woman. On its website, you will not find a doctrinal statement, But you will find a short list of God's calls to us today. Here are God's calls. Embrace adventure. Inspire others. Feel like a team. And the most cryptic one, digital revolution. Spurgeon would not have been surprised by this. In the magazine that he edited, this is called The Sword and the Trowel. You might have heard of this. A monthly newsletter that he published and distributed, you'll find this written in the year 1887. It says this, in the case of every errant course, there's always a first wrong step. The first step astray is a lack of adequate faith in the divine inspiration of the sacred scriptures. Let a man entertain low views on the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and he will be without chart to guide him, without anchor to hold him. Where ministers and Christian churches have held fast to the truth that the Holy Scriptures are an authoritative and infallible rule of faith and practice, they've never wandered very seriously out of the right way. But when reason has been exalted above revelation, all kinds of errors and mischiefs have been the result. Spurgeon understood that the Christian faith is built upon the claims of the Bible. And if the the truthfulness of the Bible is denied undermined, then the Christian faith will disintegrate. Spurgeon's argument for the truthfulness of the Bible can be articulated very simply. When God speaks, he tells the truth. God speaks to us in his word. He speaks directly and clearly. God does not deceive us. God does not make mistakes. What he has to say is without error. Here's another way to think about it. We can't know anything about God except insofar as God chooses to reveal himself to us. 
He's revealed some of himself, generally in nature. Ben talked about general revelation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in the things that have been made. But general revelation has its limits. It's indirect, not direct. It shows, it doesn't tell. It's enough to condemn us, but not enough to save us. And so God has chosen, in his grace, to reveal himself in another way, in a direct way, through words given first to the prophets, then to the apostles, written down and compiled into the Bible. And since God reveals himself in his word, to trust God is to trust his word. To doubt God is to doubt his words. And to disobey God is to disobey his words. The Bible itself attests to this endlessly. Let's just take a whirlwind tour, moving chronologically, just sampling what various characters in the Bible record about God's word. From Moses, we've seen this just now. Man shall not live by bread alone, Deuteronomy 8, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus will quote that in the temptation in the wilderness. David says, your words are true. Doesn't get simpler than that. From the Psalms, and this is just selecting a few of the countless phrases like this. The law of the Lord is perfect. The judgments of the Lord are true. Those are from Psalm 19. The sum, of your, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119. Solomon, every word of God proves true. Daniel, the vision which has been told is true. The Lord says to Jeremiah, He that has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Jesus, in his high High priestly prayer, John 17, says, Thy word is truth. Again, Jesus to his disciples, If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, Jesus, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. And Peter explains what that, what that means. What, what's the Spirit's work? The prophecy of Scripture is produced as men speak from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks about the Old Testament in saying, in the law, you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And Paul speaks about the New Testament by saying that the hope laid up for you in heaven, you heard first in the word of truth, the gospel. Again, Paul, let God be true, though everyone else were a liar, as it's written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, quoting Psalm 51. Again, Paul to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. Again to Timothy, telling him to rightly handle the word of truth. Peter referring to Paul's writings as scripture. James saying that God brought us forth by the word of truth. Jude saying, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And finally, Jesus sitting on the throne in Revelation saying, write this down for these words are faithful and true. Christian, the Bible's internal testimony is clear and unmistakable. God has spoken to us and his words are true. Jesus himself regards the Bible to be without error down to the smallest detail. Let's just take one example of this. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew 22, this is a chapter where Jesus gets three questions lobbed at him. All three of them are trying to trick him, trip him up. 
We alternate between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, back to the Pharisees in this chapter. The Pharisees ask a question about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Good question. And then it's the Sadducees' turn. So find verse 23. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 23. It says, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees deny the resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now listen to this crazy situation that they've put together. So now the the Sadducees say, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married, and then he died, And having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So too, the second brother marries the woman, and the third down to the seventh. And after them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. You understand that this is not a sincere question. They've uh, put together this ridiculous situation in order to cast scorn on the doctrine of the resurrection. But you understand the situation. A a, a woman marries seven times in her life. Her husband dies and is replaced by the next brother. And then he dies and is replaced by the next brother. So the question is, when they get resurrected, I mean, it is kind of interesting to think about this. In the resurrection, what's going to happen? Is that just going to be an awkward eight-person marriage, kind of reverse Mormonism? There's one woman and seven guys? Okay, so... But for the, for the Sadducees, this is dripping with sarcasm and scorn for the idea that the dead will be raised. Still, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong. You know, he doesn't even answer the question. They just ask a question. And he just, you know, you're wrong. Because he knows, the, he knows the implication behind the question. He knows their assumptions and their presuppositions. And he wants to clarify. That he cuts to the chase. You're wrong. Because, why? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he answers the question, verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. By the way, how could Jesus have possibly known that the angels in heaven neither marry or are given in marriage? Sounds like the kind of claim that only someone who had been there would would know. So he's answered the question, but look at verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, the elephant in the room, we all know you are really trying to uh, destroy this doctrine, so let's address that. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. How does Jesus' argument work here? Why is he appealing to the phrase, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? Why is he appealing to that as proof of the resurrection of the dead? The argument hinges on the tense of a verb. In other words, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when they were alive. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And that's a statement not about himself as much as it is about the patriarchs. The patriarchs, they still exist. Their souls were not annihilated when they died. They are somewhere awaiting the resurrection from the dead. All of this depends on the word am, which God had spoken, Moses had written down. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, it had been preserved in the written word. 
and that Jesus has learned and memorized. Jesus has a high view of Scripture. Ben talked about this so well just a few moments ago. Think about how Jesus' public speech is braided, intertwined with Scripture. From the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth when he opens that scroll from Isaiah and and, and reads it and then says, pronounces that it's been fulfilled. To the end of his ministry on the cross when he quotes from the agony of Psalm 22. Jesus knew the Scriptures so intimately that when he talks, the Bible comes out. When he prays, when he teaches, when he's tempted, Scripture is on his lips. It is true that Jesus often corrects people's misinterpretations of Scripture, but Jesus never corrects Scripture. Just before the crucifixion in Gethsemane, he would pray these words to his father. He says, sanctify them, speaking of his disciples, and by extension, I think, all believers. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If Jesus can trust the truthfulness of the word of God and endure the cross, you can trust the truthfulness of the word of God too. Let's be bolder about this. I think we evangelicals need to stop qualifying, stop apologizing, stop adopting a position of almost shame and embarrassment by uh, what the Bible has to say. And let's cut to the truth that the word of God is authoritative. It is without error. It is clear. It is sufficient for our lives and it is necessary. The enemies of God, of course, want to cast doubt on the truthfulness of his words. In fact, this is their oldest trick. This is what the serpent does in the garden. He tells Eve that God was in error when God told Eve that she would surely die on the day she ate the fruit. The serpent tells Eve, the serpent tells Eve, you will not surely die. That is a clear contradiction of what God said. You could say the Satan in Genesis 3 is denying the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, if you want to prove that the scriptures are in error, as the enemies of God do, then you have to have some other standard by which to judge the Bible. If your objective is to prove absolutely that the scriptures are in error, then your other standard must itself be absolutely true. In other words, if you want to demolish the inerrancy of the Bible, you have to believe in the inerrancy of something else. For Roman Catholics, this other thing is the magisterium of the Catholic Church. And the great crisis of the Middle Ages came when the pronouncements of the magisterium conflicted so sharply with what Scripture taught that motivated Luther to take the stand that he did. Now, we are no longer living in a world dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. Praise the Lord. We are, however, living in the detritus of the Enlightenment. Remember a minute ago I quoted Spurgeon in 1887... He says, when reason has been exalted above revelation, all kinds of errors and mischiefs have been the result. The Enlightenment did exactly this, is to exalt reason above revelation. The project of the Enlightenment was to attempt to retain belief in transcendent values, beauty, truth, goodness, without reference to a transcendent God. With the Enlightenment, the standard of truth became reason. And over the next three centuries, let's say from 1700 to 1900, 
reason became synonymous with the scientific method. The attack on biblical inerrancy that is happening now is an attack launched in the name of science. When people insist that the Bible is not true, they do so on the grounds that science has shown. Science has shown that the universe was popped into being billions of years ago. Science has shown that human beings originated in Africa, not in the Middle East. Science has shown that religion is just a primitive form of philosophy, part of our evolutionary progress. Religion, uh, science has shown that belief in miracles is naive. Miracles can't happen. There is no such thing, and belief in them is naive. Science has shown that the universe is self-causing, that there is no afterlife, that humans are merely advanced animals, that gender is a malleable social construction, that sin, similarly, is a culturally variable psychological category. Or Stephen Hawking's claim that science has shown that God does not need to exist. You might be listening to that list and thinking... Science has shown none of that. None of that has been proved or disproved by science. And of course, you're right. And it turns out that the assault on the Bible, done in the name of science, is also, in a weird way, an attack on science itself. It vastly overrates what science is capable of doing. And to ground your life and your worldview on scientific claims, as so many young people are doing, and I see this in the academy all the time, and not just at the Catholic school, also at the evangelical school, the default position... The presupposition that undergirds so many young people is that ultimate truth is found exclusively in in the scientific method. To do this is to build your house upon the sand. So I propose, let's spend a couple minutes cutting science back down to its appropriate proportions. What we call science, in hushed and reverent tones, is just a collection of theories that attempt to explain causation in the physical world. You see something happen in the physical world, you want to know why. What caused that? Something moves. What moved it? That's a very simple way of saying the truth. That is the concern of science. These theories, scientific theories, they only last until they've been disproven. And scientific theories are disproven all the time. In fact, it's very rare that a theory survives the constant revolutions in scientific consensus and thought. And of the great scientific theories, there have only ever been four. Only four. Newton's mechanics, Maxwell's theory of the electromagnetic field, Einstein's theory of relativity, and quantum mechanics. And that's it. Let's go through that list of four one by one and see how they've fared. Okay, so Newtonian physics is the first one. Isaac Newton. 1687, publishes the Principia Mathematica. Force, mass, acceleration, this is what you learned in high school physics, if you got that far. I went to a Christian school, and the education was awful, and we had like a, a, a link program before Zoom was a thing, and so I didn't learn this stuff in high school. But most of you probably learned Newtonian physics mechanics in high school. It works extremely well. Most of our world is, uh, and our technology and the buildings and bridges, rely on Newton's equations. However, while they are approximately true, they are not absolutely true. They do not actually reflect how the world works. And this has been shown 
by Einstein's theories. Einstein disproved and replaced Newton. So the first of the four theories has been disproved, although we still use it all the time. What about the second one? Maxwell's theory of the electromagnetic field. This is from 1865. Electricity, magnetism, and light were the areas of his concern for the theory. Similarly, it is approximately true, but it has been disproved and replaced by quantum mechanics, which is also on the list. Okay, so two of them have been replaced. The two remaining are Einstein's theory of relativity, which replaced Newtonian mechanics, and quantum mechanics, which replaced Maxwell. Those two have survived. However, they cannot both be true. They're not compatible with one another. Einstein's theory of relativity has to do with large-scale, think like space. The universe is expanding. Um, the speed of light. Uh, black holes, that kind of, all that cosmic stuff. Astronomy. Astronomical equations. Quantum mechanics, as you probably can figure out, has to do with the subatomic, the very small, the, the forces that are involved in uh, holding atoms together and the subatomic particles. They're both compelling theories. Neither has been, out, neither has been outright disproved, but they, we know that they're not compatible with each other. So at least one of them must be false. So that's at least three of the four great scientific theories that are not true. But it's not just the great scientific theories that are fraught with problems. Ten days ago, I ran across an article that appeared in the scientific journal Science by author Warren S. Warren, whose name itself, I think, is proof of intelligent design. <laughs> the, the, the article was entitled, Earning the Public's Trust. Warren, Warren writes that the phrase, trust science, the phrase, trust science, has become a mantra in recent years, yeah? Not just from politicians, but also from major segments of the scientific community. But he argues, I, I like Warren Warren, he argues that this trust is ill-placed due to the high number of overturned scientific claims. He lists three of them. The first one is just the decade's worth of claims of imminent apocalypse due to climate change, which have not transpired. Now, I, I'm not... I don't have a dog in that fight. It seems like sea levels are rising. It seems like the ocean's getting warmer and glacial and blah, blah, It might be happening. But the point is that decades of predictions have failed to come true. That's number one. Number two, the claim that dietary cholesterol is a major contributor to heart disease, a view now discredited. Let's go. So bring on the cholesterol. And then the third claim, and this is chilling, uh, he just brings up that last July, the editor of the British Medical Journal, the most significant English language peer-reviewed medical journal in the world, the editor wrote last July, quote, it is time to assume that health research is fraudulent until proved otherwise. He's no longer the editor at the British Medical Journal. Warren's point is well taken. Science seems to be more fickle than it is reliable. And surely, folks, I don't need to bring up how this has been demonstrated adequately over the last 24 months. Just think of the basic questions on which the scientific establishment has flip-flopped. Let me list a couple of them. Are masks necessary? If so, what kind of mask is effective? Does natural immunity exist? Should I sterilize my grocery bags when I go shopping? Could COVID-19 have originated in a lab? Are there any potential risks to vaccination? Now, 
please understand that I am not expressing an opinion about any of these questions. I'm certainly not denying the gravity of a disease that has taken the lives of people that I know. I'm simply pointing out how fluidly the scientific consensus has pivoted from one assertion to the contrary assertion. That's my point. All the while posing as the final and infallible authority in our world. What did President Biden say on the day he took office? Do you remember this? We will be an administration that believes in science. And you can just see the capital S in that sentence. Science. All rise. And I've had enough of that. How dare someone say... After COVID, science says, science has shown, science proves, trust the science, believe the science. Guys, there's no one thing called science. There are countless theories put forward by countless scientists, each of whom is affected by personal motivation, professional pressures, lobbying, bias, hubris, and greed. And at the end of the day, even if science could give us anything close to a definitive, unified explanation of causation in the physical world, it is still powerless to refute a single miracle. This is C.S. Lewis's point in his heady book, Miracles. A system that limits itself to the material, as science does, can have nothing to say about the immaterial. Discovering the physical rules that govern the material universe doesn't mean that those rules can never be broken, upended, changed by a higher order of being. Just as you could, you could learn all the rules of monopoly and play them perfectly halfway through a game, but that's not going to stop your mom from coming in, messing up the board, putting it all, up, all away because you need to use the, ta- the table for dinner or something like that. Even the most ironclad scientific theory imaginable would still be powerless to explain the essential miracles of the universe. How did matter and energy come from nothing? How did organic material come from inorganic material? And how did consciousness arise from non-consciousness? Science has no answers to these basic questions. The Bible answers all three in its first 800 words. Friends, when science and the Bible collide and you hear a hollow noise, the fault is not with the Bible. Why then are so many evangelicals still apparently in a groveling posture before the altars of the Enlightenment? Why are so many ministers, as Spurgeon put it in 1887 toying with the deadly cobra of another gospel in the form of modern thought. I want you to recall that there's a striking difference, a difference between the temptation of Eve in the garden and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. When the devil tempts Eve, he denies outright what God has said. He denies the inerrancy of God's word. But when the devil tempts Jesus, he quotes the Bible as if assuming that it is true, but he twists the interpretation in order to make his temptation more forceful. What I'm getting at is that there are two ways to deny God's word. You can claim that the Bible doesn't tell the truth. That's clear. That, that, that claim is clear. <laughs> or you can claim that the Bible does tell the truth all the while twisting that truth into falsehood. Two strategies. The strategy in the garden is brazen. The strategy in the wilderness 
is cunning. Again, from Spurgeon's magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, from 1887, this time talking about pastors who still claimed to believe in the doctrine of inerrancy. He says this, In too many cases, the husks of theological speculations are preferred to the wholesome bread of gospel truth. With some, the endeavor seems not to be how steadily and faithfully they can walk in the truth, but how far they can get from it. Our counsel is, do not go too near the precipice. You may slip and fall over. Keep where the ground is firm. Do not venture on the rotten ice. Well, it seems to me, friends, and I could be wrong. What do I know? But it seems to me that more and more evangelicals are playing on the thin ice, playing with fashionable speculation. And there's a horrible irony to this situation that sometimes those who just deny the inerrancy of the Bible outright are more honest about what the Bible actually says because they can then glibly reject it. And it's us who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture that are the ones that might obscure the clear teaching of the Bible. Here's an example. If you were to have gone to Oxford University around the year 2000 and met with the professor of Hebrew at Oxford University, and if you had asked him, does Genesis 1 teach that God created the world in six days? If you had asked him that question, this is the most revered English-speaking Hebrew scholar in the world. He would have said, of course Genesis 1 teaches that. Genesis 1 is a straightforward story. It's not trying to trick us by making myth sound like history. If anything, it's doing the reverse. It's trying to relay history in mythic language the way any good storyteller would do. Especially if your story is the origin of the world. You're going to couch it in poetic language. That doesn't change the thrust of the story. Now, the Hebrew scholar at Oxford can tell it like it is because he's not a believer. He doesn't believe in inerrancy or that the Bible is the word of God or that that book has any authority over him at all. He doesn't believe that the history in Genesis 1 is accurate. And so he can have a good laugh and be done. But at least he's clear about what Genesis 1 teaches. If you were to ask the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, who does believe in inerrancy. Does Genesis 1 teach that God created the world in six days? Prepare yourself for an hour-long, tortured, introspective, endlessly qualifying, flavorless word salad of an answer, which ultimately will say Genesis 1 confirms all the details of cosmological and biological evolution. What is the reason for this? It's because those of us who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, we are in a tricky position. Because we believe that the Bible is God's word, without error, authoritative over our lives, Pastor Keller is stuck with what the Bible says. And sometimes we are painfully aware that what the Bible teaches is out of favor among fashionable people. Do you understand that it's we 
It is we who embrace the doctrine of inerrancy who will be more tempted to become ashamed and embarrassed by what the Bible says, and therefore much more desperate to smooth out the inconvenient wrinkles in Scripture. Now, to be fair, the historicity of Genesis 1 is perhaps not the most important issue in Scripture. It is crucially important. But consider where things might head if those of us who believe in inerrancy continue to convolute our interpretation of the Bible in order to better align with current social and scientific trends. The Bible is inerrant, but dot, dot, dot. But it only whispers about certain sins. The Bible is inerrant, comma, But the Apostle Paul's teachings on husbands and wives and women in the church and church order, these were socially uh, socially relevant. They're They're specific to his culture and no longer relevant to us today. Or what about, yes, the Bible is inerrant, but a substitutionary blood sacrifice to appease the wrath of the Father, this is, it might have worked for the Jews, which was a brutal, sacrificial nation. But for us, it's crude and barbaric. No, we conservative evangelicals, I think we're good at recognizing the tactics of Satan in the garden. We're less good, I think, at identifying the tactics of Satan in the wilderness. In other words, affirming affirming the authority And the inerrancy of scripture is a necessary beginning. But the final struggle on any theological issue will come down to the clarity and the sufficiency of scripture. That, I think, is as good of a segue as we're going to get. And so, why don't I end it there? Let me pray. We'll have a break. We'll come back and worship, and then we'll hear from Brother Tony about the clarity of scripture. Father, we echo the prayer of the Lord Jesus in the garden. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We cannot build a lasting house unless we build it on the rock. And all around us, it seems that there's nothing but shifting sands. And it's always been that way. The world has always put forward fake and artificial options for people to build their house on. Any other option, just not the word of God. And when we were in our sins, we were the same way. Trying to flee your authority, desperate to escape you. But in your grace, you've caught us, turned us back, put us on a firm foundation. You've shown us that your word is not just true, but it's a comfort, it's a delight. It's a treasure house of wisdom. And it's the only hope for the lost. So we thank you for revealing yourself to us, your grace, your holiness, your love, your mercy in the gospel of your son. We pray this in his name.